0: We're in Luke chapter four today. Would you stand with me as we read from Luke four verses four to fourteen to thirty? Luke four verses fourteen to thirty. We're we're jumping back just a little bit. Uh, Pastor Tom was in chapter five, but we did not want to miss this section of Luke, and I was slated to preach on it uh, a few weeks ago. We're doing it today, and then we'll be continuing forward out um, into chapter six and beyond. So we're in Luke four verses fourteen to thirty. Then Jesus returned in the power of the spirit to Galilee and news of him went out through all the surrounding region and he taught in in their synagogues being glorified by all. So he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up and as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read and he was handed the book of the prophet Isaiah and when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Then He closed the book and He gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes, the eyes of all who were in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. So all bore witness to him and marveled at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. And they said, is this not Joseph's son? And he said to them, you will surely say this proverb to me, physician, heal yourself. Whatever we have, done, whatever we have heard done in Capernaum, do also here in your country. Then he said, Assuredly, I say to you, no prophet is accepted in his own country. But I tell you truly, many widows were in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut up three years and six months and there was a great famine throughout all the land. But to none of them was Elijah sent except to Zarephath in the region of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. And many lepers were in Israel in the time of Elisha, the prophet, and none of them was cleansed except Naaman, the Syrian, verse 28, so all those in the synagogue, when they heard these things, they were filled with wrath. And they rose up and they thrust him out of the city and they led him to the brow of the hill on which their city was built that they might throw him down over the cliff. Then passing through the midst of them, Jesus went his way. You may be seated. on your outline at the bottom of the first side John Martin writes these words he says these 17 verses serve as Luke's summary of what happened throughout the entire ministry of Jesus let me read that part again these 17 verses serve as as Luke's summary of what happened throughout the entire ministry of Jesus that is Jesus declared himself to be the Messiah verse 21 the Jewish hearers prove themselves to be unworthy of God's blessings, verses 28 and 29. And the gospel would also go to the Gentiles, verses 24 to 27. In other words, what Martin says there is that if you, were, if you read Luke 4, verses 14 to 30, you are reading an entire summary of the gospel of Luke and of Jesus' ministry. It's an important and critical text, one that we... Do not want to overlook. The title of my message today is a long one, but for good reason. It is Jesus, filled with God's Spirit, to find and bless the needy and receptive ones. Jesus, filled with God's Spirit, to find and bless the needy and receptive ones. Let's look again at verse 14 to 16. Luke writes, then Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee and news of him went out through all the surrounding region. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And so he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. A little bit about the synagogue. Um, This is a, a, a fascinating um, organization in first-century Israel. The synagogue uh, was a uh, an entity that developed. Most scholars, some scholars say, it developed during the exile period. In other words, during the time in which Israel was exiled to Babylon. Others say, no, the synagogues appeared shortly thereafter, the, 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 They call it what's called the post-exilic period, just after the time in Babylon. That's when the synagogues began to develop. It's a little bit difficult to determine which is correct. Needless to say, sometime between approximately the mid-700s and we might say the mid-500s B.C., synagogues began to arise throughout ancient Israel. These were different than the temple, which of course was at Jerusalem. The temple was the central focus uh, of the uh, religious expression of the Jewish faith. But synagogues were smaller subsets of what was ultimately to be taking place in the temple. A synagogue was uh, put up in a town with at least 10 men, then you needed to be 10 uh, men or elders, so to speak, in order to form a synagogue. And uh, they, they were put up in towns for the purpose of prayer, of uh, community worship, of reading of the, the law and the prophets. There was a synagogue ruler. Um, you might recall um, a man by the name of Jairus in the gospel story. We're going to meet Jairus in Luke chapter 8. And there was a synagogue ruler, the, the, the Archelon, who uh, basically conducted the synagogue. He was the head elder. He organized the services. Uh, he, he arranged what would happen on a Sabbath day as the, as the, the people would come and, and meet in the synagogue. Um, what they would do beyond prayer and worship was a, a primary focus on reading of the law and the prophets. And it was in that order. They would, there, there would be someone that would come among the men, that would come to the, to the front, so to speak, of the synagogue. They would rise up and they would read a portion from uh, the Pentateuch somewhere between uh, Genesis and Deuteronomy. They would read from the law, and then there would be a selection read from the prophets. Um, Oftentimes Isaiah, which is what uh, Jesus is going to stand and read here in our text, but the man would stand up, he would read a selection from the law and the prophets, and then he would sit down, and this is significant, he would sit back down um, as they began to comment on what was just read. So there was, you know, we stand during the reading of the word here at Coast. That's something that we generally do um, out of a a sign of respect, a a sign of um, admiration to God for his word. That has historical roots in what happened in the synagogue. When it says that Jesus stood to read, that was a very common practice for standing to read the law or the the prophets. And then they would sit down to comment on... um, on the scriptures, so if we were in keeping with the synagogue, I'd be preaching from the front row, facing this way. That wouldn't work too well, though, right? Jesus stands, and uh, he's he's handed the book of Isaiah. Before he's handed it, though, take a look at what it says about Jesus in verses uh, 14 to 16. It says, "Then he returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee." he having just come out by the way uh, off of baptism off of the temptation experience in the wilderness so jesus here is ha- has had some very powerful spiritual experiences and it says there he he in news of him went out throughout all the surrounding region so all of a sudden there's Uh, news is going out about Jesus. He's been baptized by John. Word is circulating because remember, everybody was talking about John the Baptist. Everybody was talking about him. And here John the Baptist is saying, whoa, I think this guy is the Messiah. So word is circulating about Jesus. And verse 15, he taught in their synagogues, meaning all the surrounding synagogues of Galilee, being glorified by all. Glorified there meaning being praised by all. The people the Jews in the synagogues who were listening to Jesus among the elders of every local synagogue, he would stand up, he would speak, and then he would sit down and he would comment and they were were listening and they were very curious as to what he was beginning to teach in the surrounding regions. They were praising him. They were recognizing his authority. So he came to Nazareth, his hometown, verse 16, where he had been brought up As was as his custom was, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read. Now we get to verse seventeen. Now he was handed the book of the prophet. Isaiah. Here again, is, you can see an arrangement of the service. So, Jairus in Luke 8, who is the head elder of the synagogue, hey, he would have had an arrangement of service. He would have probably apportioned out what was going to be read from the law, what was going to be read from um, the prophets, or perhaps he would have simply selected the scroll from which to read, and that the person who stood uh, before the people would then pick a selection within that scroll. Jesus is given the Isaiah scroll. And he stands up and he spreads out the scroll. Verse 17, handed the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written. Verse 18, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Then he closed the book, or the scroll, and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all who were in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today the Scriptures fulfilled in your hearing. Let's look carefully at what Jesus read for just a moment because what he read is of incredible significance. First, the opening line of verse 18. It comes from Isaiah chapter 61 in our Bibles verses 1 and 2. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. number of things taking place in that text. The first is is that it's Trinitarian. Do you notice that? You have the Holy Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. We're going to find out who me is in just a minute. It's a Trinitarian reference there in Isaiah 61.1. A rare one, by the way, in, uh, in the Old Testament. There are not many, but there's one right in front of us. Also, this is a reference to perhaps to the baptism that Jesus just experienced in Luke 3 where the Holy Spirit descended like a dove upon him. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, Jesus is reading. Of course, now he's reading from Isaiah 61. So let's get out of our minds just for a minute that Jesus is referencing himself. Remember, he's standing in the synagogue. He's spread out the scroll. He's found the selection that he wishes to read and he begins to read it. Well, he, from the audience's standpoint, He's simply reading a selection of Isaiah. He's simply reading a selection of the Old Testament scriptures. But who's me in Isaiah 61.1? Who is me? On your outline there, the word me there is also known throughout the book of Isaiah as God's servant, also known as the Holy One of Israel. And I'll let you write in the last one. It also is known as Messiah. Messiah, write that down. The term Messiah is not used in the book of Isaiah, but it's understood by everyone in the synagogue that Isaiah 61, verse 1 and following, is a reference to that the speaker is the Messiah, the Holy One of Israel, God's servant. The me there in Isaiah 61, the audience listening to Jesus would have readily understood that Jesus was speaking, was reading from a selection of Isaiah that was coming from the voice of Messiah. And let's look for just a minute at the task that this servant of God is called to carry out. So this me, whoever this person is, God's servant, the Holy One of Israel, what is this person's task according to Isaiah 61? Take a look at verse 18. He says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He has anointed me to, and here's the tasks, to preach the gospel to the poor, write down poor. We're just going to go through this as it reads in the text. To preach the gospel to the poor, He sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Now I'll go to your outline for just a minute. The task of God's servant, I've summarized it a little bit, I've compacted it a little bit, is to preach the gospel to the poor. Second bullet point, to heal the brokenhearted. Third bullet to give sight to those who are blind. Fourth, and this is a combination of two parts of that of Isaiah 61. To proclaim and actualize liberty for the oppressed and captive ones. I'm taking this from in verse 18 where it says to proclaim liberty to the captives. And then also at the end of verse 18 where it says to set at liberty those who are oppressed. And so I'm combining those two uh, because they concern the same theme and finally and I've given an interpretation of this here on the outline to declare the year of Jubilee freedom from all debts in, in accordance with Leviticus twenty-five ten, which is to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord a little bit about verse 19 of Luke 4 when, when Isaiah wrote to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord that's, uh, that's terminology in the Jewish scriptures referencing back to the year of Jubilee The year of freedom. The year of freedom from debts. Every 50 years in the Jewish calendar, there was a proclamation of a year of jubilee in which all essentially uh, debts owed another were supposed to be forgiven, were supposed to be um put away, and actually even returned, such that if you sold your land to someone and you sold it because you were in dire straits, and you sold it for pennies on the dollar, so to speak, and so you had just you had made a, a poor and a hasty decision and you had sold it. At the year of Jubilee, that poor decision, that the 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 the, the, the dire straits that you were in is expected to be returned to you and you're to be restored what you had once lost. Debts canceled, poor decisions wiped out, a reset for the community, for the culture, so that there would not be uh, a taking of advantage by others toward you, so that there would not be a culture of abuse so that there would not be situations in which uh, the the poor and the marginalized in particular were abused by those who had means. The year of Jubilee was, uh, well, in many respects, it was a way to um, distribute again to those who had lost what they owned or who had encumbered themselves with excessive debt. to to have that forgiven. And so to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord is in essence to declare the year of Jubilee, freedom from all debts. This is the task of God's servant in Isaiah 61. Preach the gospel to the poor. Heal the broken. Give sight to the the blind. And we're we're to read into this, of course, not just... Not just physical, but also spiritual implications of statements like these. To proclaim and actualize, make it a reality, the liberty for the oppressed and captive ones. And to declare jubilee. To declare that no more will those who are poor and marginalized be encumbered by excessive debts and by years of of regretting bad decisions there'll be a canceling of debt when God's servant comes. It's a fascinating text in, Luke, in Isaiah 61. And of course, as the people were listening to Jesus speak about God's servant, they were, they were fixated on Jesus. It says as much in verse 20. Look at it. Then he closed the book. He gave it back to the attendant. He sat down and the eyes of all who were in the synagogue were fixed on him. They were staring at him. Mesmerized by the selection that Jesus had chosen from the prophet Isaiah. Why were they mesmerized? Why were they, um, why were they just in awe of this moment? Well, for one, I think that they were um, a little bit confused and perplexed. You know, they were, they were hearing about Jesus, right? News of him was going throughout the region. His popularity was rising. They were hearing from other synagogues what he had told them and they were very excited for this, this new rabbi to come and to speak in their synagogue. And he was a, a homegrown boy. He had, he had gone to the town high school. They were excited. He was coming home. They were going to see what he could do. And so they were, they were a little bit apprehensive. They didn't know what Jesus what he would preach on, what he, how, what, how would he comment on it? They were apprehensive. They were a little perplexed. And you know what? It was understandable that they were. Even John the Baptist on your outline, John the Baptist was even perplexed by Jesus, by, by everything that he would do during the life of his ministry up until the point where John was beheaded. John was watching him going, wait a minute. Are you Messiah or not? I'm confused. In fact, on your outline right there, it says right in the middle, when asked by John's disciples whether or not he was the Messiah, this is what Jesus said in Matthew 11. Jesus answered and said to them, go tell John the Baptist the things which you hear and see. The blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. Sound familiar with Luke 4? The task of God's servant in Isaiah 61, what Jesus read from and how Jesus responds to John the Baptist later when, when he's confused and now the people are confused are part and parcel of one another. Isaiah 61 and Matthew 11 line up neatly, beautifully. But the people are confused And John is confused because this wasn't their conception of Messiah. This was not their conception of Messiah. I want to skip a little bit on your outline to where it talks about what the crowd expected next. Look what it says it says, But the crowd says, No, Jesus, go on, keep reading. Keep going in Isaiah. Get to the best part, Jesus. Get to the part that, that fulfills what we think Messiah is. Keep going, Jesus. I know you're, you've read from Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2, but Jesus, keep reading. Why would they have wanted that? Because of what comes next. Look at Isaiah 61, 2, and then later in 5 and 6. It goes on. To proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord, note this, and the day of vengeance Of our God, verse 5, strangers, Gentiles, shall stand and feed your flocks, Israel, and the sons of the foreigner, the Gentile, shall be your plowmen and your vine dressers. You shall eat the riches of the Gentiles. You see, the reason that the people were perplexed and confused and wanting Jesus to keep reading, so to speak, is because had he kept going, he would have fulfilled what their conception of Messiah was. Because their conception of Messiah was this guy, later on in Isaiah 61. The guy who would proclaim God's vengeance who would bring Israel back to her place of prominence, who would throw off the Roman oppressor, throw off the Gentiles who harmed them, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Greeks, the Romans. The Jews of Jesus' day and the men of the synagogue listening to Jesus that day, they wanted Jesus to keep reading in Isaiah. They said, you know, I I don't like his selection. I want him to keep going. Get to the vengeance part. Get to the power part. Get to the authority part. Get to the part where Israel is lifted high and all the nations are bowing down before us. Get to that part, Jesus. Jesus doesn't read that part. Jesus stops mid thought in Isaiah 61. Mid thought. Today, uh, you might criticize a preacher for stopping mid-thought in a text and say, hey, you're not giving the full context. That's a preacher's nightmare, right? To, uh, to preach a message and for the people to come back and say, you know, uh, pastor, you, you only read half of that. If you read the other half, then you would have understood what was really going on in that portion of the Bible. But Jesus does exactly that. In Isaiah 61, he takes a knife and slices it and says, I'm going to read this part. I'm going to talk about the task of God's servant now. And I'm going to leave off that last part. Oh, it'll come. That last part is scripture, it's prophecy. And the servant of God, the Holy One of Israel, the Messiah who spoke those words to Isaiah, who recorded them, that day will come. But Jesus is taking a knife right down the heart of Isaiah's prophecy and saying, but now we're over here. We're over here. The task right now, Jesus says, is to preach the gospel to the poor, to heal the broken to give sight to those who are blind, to proclaim and to actualize liberty for the oppressed and the captive ones, and to declare the year of Jubilee freedom from past debts and mistakes. Many then in Jesus' day, and many now in our day, get Jesus' mission wrong. Write that down, right in the middle. Many then and many now get Jesus' mission wrong. We mistake the idea that now is the time for vengeance. Now is the time for God to put all things right and to take the powers that be in this world and to turn them upside down, to take evil and to squash it utterly and entirely, to take sickness and disease and to do away with it forever. God, right now, turn the world upside down and make it right. Bring back your justice, bring back your vengeance on those who have been evil toward us and toward you. And do it now, God. That's what many expect of Jesus right now. And Jesus said 2,000 years ago, and he's saying today to us, you know what? I've taken a knife and I've separated the purposes of my first coming and of my second coming. And we're still here. We're still in the realm of preaching the gospel, of healing the broken, of giving sight to the blind, of proclaiming and making a reality of liberty to those who are captive and oppressed in spiritual bonds of wickedness and to declare freedom from all debts and past mistakes, sins. Don't mistake Jesus' mission, friends. Uh, I like politics. Uh, many don't. And I don't suggest making it a hobby. But in my, in my desire for good politics, I sometimes get this idea that somehow, some way, it could all be right if just the right man were chosen or just the right person were in high places. Oh, Lord, it would then be right. But you know what? I'm fooling myself. I'm thinking over here. I'm thinking over here. Jesus says this is this is what's now wait for vengeance wait for God to make all things right at his second advent but right here right now focus on the task that God's servant Jesus the Messiah was focused on change the world in a different way not through power not through authority, not through high places. Change hearts. Lift up broken people. Find the blind ones and the needy ones and the poor ones and the ones in chains of addiction and oppression and break those chains in the power of the Spirit. Jesus was filled with God's Spirit. Why? To find and bless the needy and receptive ones. He was commissioned by God, endowed by the Spirit's power to identify who were the needy ones, who were gonna be the ones to receive receptive hearts, Find them and bless them. You know, the people were faithful in the synagogue, you know, very faithful. Goodness gracious, they were faithful. The Jews of Jesus' day would, you know, run circles around us when it came to uh, faithfulness and attentiveness to the program, so to speak, of the synagogue. They were there every Sabbath, They were there listening to the law and the prophets and hearing the commentary of the rabbis and the itinerant teachers who would come. They were faithful. They were sitting in synagogue. They were receiving the law, receiving the prophets. But guess what? It did not guarantee them God's favor. It did not guarantee them God's favor. How do we know? It's what's borne out in Luke 4. Look at this, verse 22. So all bore witness to him and marveled at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. And then they said, is this not Joseph's son? You know, the carpenter? This was a a mild slap in the face of Jesus as as they brought up this question. In effect, they were saying... Are you for real? Like, we know your dad. We know your mom. We know your brothers. And you're claiming that you've just now fulfilled this text? You're claiming, Jesus, that you are the fulfillment of the Isaiah text that you've just read? Are you for real? Awe, but skepticism. Wonder at Jesus, but a little bit of suspicion. Faithfully sitting in the synagogue morning, noon, and night on Sabbath. Faithfully attending to the reading of the law, the reading of the prophets, the listening of the commentary. And yet the Messiah stands before them, God's servant, the Holy One of Israel, and says, and I'm it. And they go, ah, I'm not so sure. And he said to them he was perceiving their thoughts here he said you'll surely say this proverb to me physician heal yourself whatever we've heard you do in Capernaum do also here in your country in other words Jesus was saying to them you know what I know what you're thinking you're saying prove it prove it Jesus you've gotten up here you've, you've, you've read your, your piece from the prophet you've made your comments now prove it heal yourself do what you did in, in, in Capernaum, which for Luke is actually chronologically out of order. What, they, what he did in Capernaum came, comes later in Luke, but actually comes earlier in the chronology of the Gospels. Again, the Gospels are not always chronological. Keep that in mind as you read them. Often thematic instead of chronological. Prove it, Jesus. Verse 24, and he said to them, Assuredly I say to you, no prophet is accepted in his own country. But I tell you truly, many widows were in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heaven was shut up three years, six months, and there was a great famine throughout all the land. But to none of them was Elijah sent except to Zarephath in the region of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. And many lepers were in Israel in the time of Elisha, the prophet, and none of them was cleansed. Except Naaman, the Syrian. Where is he going with this? Why is he going in this direction as he responds to the charge of prove it, Jesus? Jesus was referencing two old testament stories. I've given you on your outline if you wish to go back. We're not going to look at them ourselves today. First Kings seventeen, the story of Elijah. 2 Kings 5, the story of Elisha that uh, are referenced here. Both stories were periods in Israel's history that were uh, less than ideal. They were periods in Israel's history where their hearts were hard, where the kings of Israel were wicked and cruel, and where the people were just not ready to receive the good blessings of God. And so in the midst of a heart a, a nation's heart that was hard God of course sent them they they sowed what they reaped and so God they, they they reaped what they sowed and so God sent them consequences sent them curses upon the land there was famine there was drought there was uh, there was excessive famine and drought as a matter of fact and the people were suffering and Jesus says but if you notice if you take note Who did God go and bless during that time? Well, in Elijah's case, he went to the region of Sidon. Where's Sidon? Way to the north. Is it in Israel? No. It's a Gentile territory. Jesus, in effect, is saying, hey, remember, remember, folks, in the synagogue, remember what God did when the nation's heart was hard? during the time of Elijah and Elisha, God took his blessing and he pushed it far away where there was a need for it and where there was a receptive heart. He took it all the way to Sidon, way to the north, to a Gentile widow and blessed her with enough, with enough meal for her and her son. And where did God take his blessing? During the time of Elisha, the prophet, when once again the nation's heart was hard, he allowed a Syrian general to receive healing from leprosy. A Gentile received the blessings of God. A Gentile in need with an open and receptive heart, received the blessings of God while the nation suffered. In effect, what Jesus is telling the synagogue, the the crowd who are listening, he says in 900 years, you've been slow to respond to your prophets. Perhaps God's blessing will have to go elsewhere again. It's been 900 years and you're still not responding to the word of God right in front of you. He said, perhaps the blessing of God will have to go somewhere else again. Well, you can imagine how the people felt about that as they heard the point of the story. They were not very happy at all. Look at verse 28. And so all those in the synagogue, when they heard these things, they were filled with wrath and they rose up and they thrust him out of the city and then they led him to the brow of the hill on which their city was built that they might throw him down over the cliff and passing through the midst of them he went his way the crowd's reaction went from go to verse 15 glorifying Jesus praising him verse 15 of Luke 4 to verse 28 exhibiting an uncontrollable rage toward him The word wrath there, thumos in Greek, it means an impulsive outburst, an exploding anger. It's different, by the way, from the traditional word wrath used to describe God's wrath, which is orge, which means a more settled, a secure anger, a resolved anger. Orge is used to describe God's wrath. Thumos, Is used to describe the people's wrath. It explodes out of them. It is a rush of rage. They thrust him out of the synagogue. They throw him out of the city. They lead him to the brow of the hill on which the city was built. I've been there. I've seen that hill actually. And uh, what they were about to do was toss him over a cliff, and if he had survived it, they would have thrown stones down upon him. Probably hearkening, pro- pro- probably hailing Deuteronomy thirteen five, the notion that Jesus was a false prophet and deserved such a death. But Luke says Jesus went his way. Poreuomai, to go one's way in a led direction in a divine direction has the notion of divine leading jesus went his way led by the lord a, a miracle really that he escaped the crowd that day the the people of the synagogue Faithful, faithful, morning, noon, and night on Sabbath. Um, Members of the community devoted to the law and to the prophets and to the commentary of the rabbis, always present when the word was being preached and read and commented on. Such presence, such attendance, There's no guarantee of God's favor. So also sitting faithfully in church, good as that is, admirable as that is. Something that the elders would say, yes, be faithful, be attentive, be participating. When the church comes together, whether it's Sunday or Wednesday or or whatever, when when there's reading of the word when there's commentary on the word, be here, be present, be listening. But guess what? No guarantee of divine favor. Bible says, nope, not just hearers of the word, doers of the word. James says, therefore laying aside all filthiness, Laying aside all overflow of wickedness, receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. Be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man observing his natural face in a mirror. For he observes himself and then he goes away and he immediately forgets what kind of man he was but he who looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it and is not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this one will be blessed in what he does. James 1, 21 to 25. And what is it that we're supposed to do? Okay, pastor, um, I don't just want to be here. I don't just want to be listening. I don't just want to receive and have intake. I want to do it. What am I supposed to do? You are the church. And as the church, you are the extension of Jesus' body. And as an extension of Jesus' body, that means you carry upon yourself now the tasks that Jesus put upon Himself. You carry upon yourself the commission that Jesus was given to do when he came at his first advent. And what is that commission? It's right here in Luke 4. To preach the gospel to the poor. To heal the brokenhearted. To proclaim liberty to the captives. Recovery of sight to the blind. To set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. That is your task. That is your task. Jesus was filled with God's Spirit to find and bless the needy and receptive ones. And so also at the bottom of your outline, I've left it blank because that's where your name goes. Put your name there. Kneel, filled with God's Spirit to find and bless the needy and receptive ones put your name there. That's your task. That's how you can become a doer of God's word. The vengeance part, <laughs> it's coming. And I know some of you, you want that. And I want that. Taking evil powers down in high places, it's coming. And I know you want that. And I want that. Re-establishing the authority of God in this land? I know you want that. And I want that. And it's coming. But such things are not yet. What is now is finding the needy and receptive ones, the ones who need it and the ones who will hear it. And if they are neither, then pass them by. Don't cast your pearls before swine. I only speak so long to someone until time and time and time and time again they reject it. And then I move on. And I say, I'm going to find somebody who's needy and who's receptive. And friends, that's why um, we make such an investment in people like Mignon. I saw her Friday. Uh, Tom has seen her. Uh, the last couple Fridays, we meet with her every Friday. And she asks me regularly, why are you doing this? Mignon's been to many churches. And uh, um, she's been in and out of a lot of situations, a lot of rehab situations. 32 years worth, she says. And she's asked me, and I know she's asked Tom many times, I... Why are you doing this? I can't. Be- the words out of her mouth. I can't believe Coast Bible Church is doing this. And I say to her, Mignon, you are exactly who Jesus wants us to minister to. You have a need, and you have a receptive heart, and we're here to help. Whatever we can do. We're not. We're, we're not. Uh, We're not focused on the people of power, the people of prestige and popularity. We're focused on those who are broken and hurting and who want, want the power of God in them. This is your task, Coast Bible Church. You are filled with God's spirit to find and to bless the needy and receptive ones. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, O Lord, Thank you, God, that Jesus has shown us the path in this life. We've got it right in front of us. It's right before our eyes. You want us, Lord, filled with your Spirit to identify and to minister to the poor and the marginalized and the hurting ones and the ones who have open hearts. God, do not take that mission away from our central focus, Lord. Let it be on our mind at all times. Let it be on our mind as we walk out of this room, drive in our car, go to our neighborhoods to work, go out into the marketplace. Lord, let our eyes and our, our minds be attentive and looking for, identifying, and seeking those who are needy and those who are going to be receptive. Lord, we will invest in them as you invested in them and as you invested in us. In Jesus' name, amen.